Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. There's lots to do today. We are midway through the week and we're midway through the beginning of August. It's a bit nicer today. Uh, the sun is at least out. Uh, there's hardly any clouds in the sky and it's not actually raining or windy. Uh, so you might say uh, it's a relatively cool and calm summer's day. Uh, so I expect all of you to be relatively cool and calm. But of course you won't be uh, because there's so much to get you all worked up. For example, to wit, all the extra uh, civil servants who are all making more than £100,000 a year. Year. 100,000 more of them since 2016. Unbelievable. What are they all doing? Why is it that nothing works if they're all actually employed to do things within government departments? Government departments must be the most inefficient places on earth. To wit, I give you the Home Office, the place that cannot seem to uh, do anything with asylum seeker applications uh, unless they do one a week. Uh, for the rest of time. We've got 170 odd thousand people waiting for an asylum claim to be processed and apparently that can't happen because there's not enough of them. Well, if you believe that, I've got some swampland in Florida to sell you. We've also had some kind of mad data breach. The Russians have now got the details of everybody who's ever voted in any election because they've got their hands on the electoral roll. What are they going to do with it? Who can say? Maybe they could get a better government in than we can. Uh, we shall see. This morning, we're going to be speaking to Madeleine Grant, columnist at The Telegraph, who's written about the state of London. It's not just Sadiq Khan that's killing it off. Uh, it's the fact that people are working from home. It's the fact that things have become so expensive. It's the fact that the country uh, has filled its cities up with loads and loads of people from somewhere else. That's not necessarily a bad problem, uh, but in London, it is particularly crucially important, I would say. 03444991000. We'll talk a bit about woke madness. We'll talk a bit as well about some members of the SNP. Some of them spending loads of money on credit cards, others of them saying that white supremacy is a massive problem. Well, not in Scotland, it's not. 0344-499-1000. Annabelle Denham is here as well. Uh, she'll be telling us what she makes of all manner of things, including, of course, the latest situation from the Bibby Stockholm down there uh, on the Dorset coast where people are saying sometimes, actually, it's quite nice down here. Looking out the window, looking out the porthole, it's quite a nice view. The food's not bad. They're getting actual cereal, which most people can't afford to buy because it's the actual real branded cereal, which has now cost about £25 a packet. Unbelievable stuff. There's also some kind of TikTok madness going on in Oxford Street today. Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, has asked people not to follow it because I think what might be happening is a load of people are going to turn up and start looting shops. Who can say? Lawless Britain once more. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on.
Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Grimm. Let's start with a text from Andy who says, Mike, I just watched Kevin O'Sullivan's interview with Robert Jenrick and couldn't believe how he totally dodged the question about local communities being imposed with hotels filled with illegal immigrants without any consultation or representation. Just keeps trotting out the same fictional ideal ideas which he cannot possibly achieve whilst we have a useless government who allow the European Court of Human Rights to determine the UK's values. Well, I can see your point there. We'll bring you some clips and some uh, uh, some little hits from Robert Jenrick's conversation. But as you would expect, you know, he did answer some questions. We didn't really give anything away that we didn't already know. Let's talk to Madeline Grant, columnist at The Telegraph, uh, and let's get her take on the day. Madeline, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very well indeed. There's always, as ever, so much to talk about. Um, but I guess we sort of should kick off with the Bibby Stockholm. And the, it's created this kind of, for me, sideshow about the whole immigration debate. It's a sideshow about how many people can you get on a barge, how many people have you got left who are not on the barge, an awful lot of them. And just this kind of ridiculous toing and froing between the people in Britain who seem to think that all immigration is fantastic and others who are a bit more concerned about the sort of localised effect of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the big the debate is something of a red herring because, you know, we talk so much about this one barge, but that amounts to, you know, maybe a couple of days of channel migration yeah. equivalent. You know, the, the, meanwhile, the, the hotels continue to be a massive problem. And obviously, the, the push and pull factors haven't really been addressed so far, despite the government's best efforts. So I think it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's one of those areas where we're really getting ourselves into a lather about something that, probably won't make much difference to the overall problem. No. I mean, I suppose the government is constantly in search of something, some silver bullet uh, that will make the people who are coming across the channel stop coming. But I don't think the barge is it, is it? No, it's not. I mean, there'd have to be, I'm sure, a range of, of, of different issues. But fundamentally, it goes back to the, you know, the law and um, the human rights law that, that, that essentially facilitates, once once people arrive here, that their cases will be tangled up in the legal system and then of course you've got the problem of the massive backlogs and the the sort of sovereignliness of of government departments in in dealing with them so it's like the worst of all possible worlds yeah. I, think. I mean, I was reading your piece in The Telegraph today, which we'll get to in a minute about the state of London. But uh, you talked about coming to the city nine years ago and, and nine years ago, uh, the civil service was a much smaller organisation than it is now. We hear this morning that the loophole uh, that they've now sort of managed to, to operate has created this surge in civil servants on much more money than they used to be. And I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you worked in the civil service, you got paid less money because you could retire earlier, you got better perks, you got a better pension, and so it sort of all evened itself out. But now there are people getting paid vast amounts of money, including uh, packages and, and, and all sorts of great pensions as well. So it's a sort of double win if you're a civil servant now. Yeah, that's really, that's really important because often in the debates about civil service pay and indeed public sector pay, the whole point about the pensions is just completely ignored, even though that's a big part of the remuneration. Yeah. So you you really ought to talk about the pensions in the same breath. But, you know, it seems like what's happened is that the civil service has been told by ministers, been told by Oliver Dowden that they need to cut their costs, that they need to show pay restraint because that's what workers in the private sector are experiencing. And their way of getting around this has been to kind of promote people to higher levels so they can still get paid more. Um, and this, I think, is a bit of a kick in the teeth to um, many workers in the private sector who haven't experienced anything like those kind of rises. And of course, they're the people that ultimately fit the bill. Um, but the thing is, I mean, 
on on its own, I'm not actually that fussed about some civil servants being paid really well. I think you do want to attract good people from the private sector. And there are many civil servants that do a great job. But I think that's incompatible with the fact that the civil service seems to expand all the time. Um, I think you've either got to have fewer people and pay them better or, you know, have a, 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 a larger workforce that mm. isn't paid kind of sums. But what you can't do is have both at once. I think that's what really... There's there's a real problem in the civil service of accountability where, you know, it's quite hard for people to get sacked or punished for bad performance right. as in the private sector. So I think you need to, if you are going to do the pay rises, you have to show that you're getting good value for money elsewhere. Yeah, there doesn't seem any, any accountability or any scrutiny either. You know, people seem to get away with whatever they want. If a minister appears to be a bit too rambunctious and comes into a new department, tries to sort of sweep it clean, uh, they get accused of bullying. You know, we've seen that happening with, with all sorts of Tory ministers. And um, we've seen people getting paid off vast amounts of money. But of course, the other thing uh, that they do uh, is it's the only business I think in the world where you can go up to someone and say could you run this project for me how long do you think it will take or could you get me a report and they go all oh, about two years you know in any other sort of private business you'd be going well maybe a month could we do it in two weeks maybe you know they get two years to do stuff yeah exactly um again I think it goes back to that problem of accountability um there's a there's not much transparency and if if if, if people don't perform well in one department often they just get shuffled off to another one they get kind of swallowed in the, the larger um uh, structure of the civil service um you know i i think you have to look at what was the civil so go back to first principles and maybe take a look at what the civil service was like when it was universally agreed to be performing well and i think you'd find that it was set up in a very different way than it is today yeah i mean do you think that we are at a point where the government can no longer cl claw back what authority it used to have. It seems to me that we've got a government now, it might be because it's been in too long, it might be because it's a bit jaded, but it can't seem to get anything done. You know, Rishi Sunak will announce something in the House of Commons and then nothing kind of happens and then nobody really bothers that nothing happens and we just kind of saunter on and go, oh, well, you know, he said he would do something, but he really can't because of those civil servants. Yeah, it's a really odd feeling, isn't it, to think that it does feel like this, that we have a government that actually has very few levers that it can pull very little that it can actually feasibly do at its disposal whether it's financially in a very straightened position um it's very much hampered about how much it can borrow and spend and there seems to be a cross-party um agreement on that you know labor is not rocking the boat with big spending pledges either it seems like no matter who's in charge you get probably different versions mm. of the, the same thing and actually it will be you know let's see what happens if and when we have a new government in i strongly suspect that they will face many of the same obstacles that the conservative government faces um, and i suppose some of it goes down to i mean it's interesting isn't it how um as you mentioned before the ministers come in and are in charge of a department and then there is massive amounts of hostile leaking that seems to be right. coming from the civil service this makes the functioning of policy very very difficult if it's operating in that environment yeah. where great acrimony and resistance to whatever it is the government's trying to do. Yeah, I remember Stephen Barclay, when he was, uh, well, still is uh, Secretary of State for Health, and there was about to be a nurses' strike, and suddenly all this leaking started happening to The Guardian, where effectively the story that they wrote was, he's not really a very nice man. I mean, that was about as bad as it got. You know, they were like, well, sometimes he, he's a bit short with people, and, you know, occasionally he writes curt notes, and, you know, the, the, the worst they could come up with after the Dominic Raab fiasco was that they didn't think he was a very nice bloke. Yeah. And, you know, Suella Braverman, 
there's you know many reasons to criticize her performance so far but i thought it was kind of um pretty insane how the story about her speeding ticket um yeah. how that that became magnified and it did seem to be coming from um mandarins because she had consulted with the civil service about whether with her own officials about whether she could um do do the course remotely or whether she had to be there in person yeah. and that seemed like i mean that's that's quite a small thing but it was magnified enormously and in the media too people mm. were acting like it was, you know the end of her career um there's a sometimes a big overreaction to small things and yes. it's not helped the media cycle oh yeah well that happened to lee anderson didn't it just because he said something to the daily express in the interview which an awful lot of people actually agreed with you know there were all sorts of people calling for him to be fired to be uh, offering up his resignation because he used the f word i mean as if politicians don't say it every day but stay with us madeline if you would i want to talk about sadiq khan we'll talk about london um he's got a great idea apparently he thinks that uh, phone companies should make their phones more worthless so that people won't steal them I kid you not, that's the big idea from Sadiq Khan's office this morning. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Sadiq Khan, so Mark Rowley have been out this morning talking about mobile phone theft and how bad it is in London. And I'll give you some statistics which will probably uh, make your eyes water in a minute. But this from Paul in Fife says, Mike Khan and Rowley's appeal to phone companies is another example of how woeful the leadership in London truly is. Yes, stop making such innovative phones. Make crap ones instead so that thieves won't steal them. Utter in Competence. London has fallen and not likely to rise anytime soon. Basically, what Khan uh, and Rowley have said uh, is that companies who make the phones should make them less worthwhile, uh, worthless, more worthless, so that people won't want to steal them. Apparently, according to figures from, uh, from the Met, 90,864 phones were stolen in 2022. That's about 250 a day, uh, one every six minutes stolen across the capital. But their idea is that what we should do uh, is make the phones worth less for people to steal. They reckon that they did this uh, cooperation with car manufacturers uh, so that radios and stereos are now no longer stolen from cars. Well, yeah, that's right. Now they just steal the whole car. So it doesn't actually make it better. Madeline Grant's here with us, a columnist at the Telegraph. Madeline, you've written this morning about the state of London, and there is a definite sense that there's a much more lawless uh, uh, kind of tone to the streets of London these days. I mean, if you've been living here nine years, I was born here a very long time ago. Uh, today actually happens to be my birthday. So, so um, you know, too many years ago that I care to remember. But, you know, I went to school in London. I've walked the streets of London for many, many years, and I've never known it to be so kind of menacing. And that includes the 80s. Oh, well, happy birthday, first of Thank all. Thank you. I'm very dedicated to be working on your birthday. Good job. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I mean, as you said, I've been, been here only nine years, but in that time, I've noticed a big difference, specifically with the cost of everything. I mean, obviously, inflation is a national problem, but the, the amount that finding a flat to rent, specifically renting a flat or a room in a flat has gone up, has been, you know, pretty extraordinary. I think far outstripping like the level of, of inflation in other areas. I mean, it's it's just quite insane. When I first moved here, you know, I earned very little money and I had to have an evening job to, to, to pay the bills. Yeah. But I did at least have a, a, a room in a flat that cost, you know, around £600 a month, which obviously that felt like a lot of money at the time. But that's that would be that would be incredibly rare. Now, the average cost of just a room has got to almost a thousand pounds a month yeah. just for a and sometimes we're not talking a nice room here we're talking a kind of a tiny room or a kind of hovel or something yeah. that is is built onto the into the it's also the laundry room or the bathroom or, you know you hear absolute horror yeah. stories a friend of mine who who um was looking for a room to rent recently got gazumped because 
someone offered to pay an entire year's rent up front. That's the level of competition. Yeah. And it's partly driven by the fact that there's been a mass exodus of um, landlords from the, the buy-to-let market. Um, and, you know, although I think I can understand the desire of many people to try to regulate landlords because there are some shocking rogue landlords out there, uh, I worry that that might actually make the problem worse because it will simply encourage more landlords to sell up and then you'll have an even smaller pool of available properties. Yeah. And of course, there's, you know, extremely high immigration into London. Um, and obviously, you know, I can't complain about that too much because I, I was not born here. But it, it feels like there's almost too there's there's so many people coming in, but the amount of building has nowhere near kept pace with that. So mm. you either have to say, we're going to have this level of net migration every year, but we will build X many properties. And right now they're doing the migration bit, but not the... not the. Yeah. There's also this, this business of building luxury apartment buildings, aren't there, isn't there? Where, where many of them are either bought for investment purposes only and not really occupied or just bought by people who have got vast amounts of money um, and they're not really aimed at anybody anywhere in the middle because we're not, I mean, I'm not one of those advocates for, you know, every single big high rise you put up, there has to be a certain amount of social cheap council type housing, but there has to be just affordable housing for people who make a reasonable living, but who are not very wealthy. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I have so much sympathy for that. Like one, one thing I would say is that if generally, even if it's bought by wealthy buyers the luxury flats that do often create room elsewhere because it means that a, perhaps a slightly less fancy flat is now not being occupied mm. so i do i'm not i'm kind of pro more being built um you know whatever it is um but i don't think that enough is, is being built um and i think it's crazy there's a great deal of objections to local building even in a place like london mm. which i find a bit bonkers is kind of in the same way that the nightlife is often hampered here because that you will have the local residents of a city like Soho, oh, sorry, not city, um, region of, of the city like Soho, complaining about noise pollution. Yeah. Right. And it's just utterly insane to me. Like, I'm, I'm from Warwickshire. I grew up in the countryside. I didn't move to London expecting it to be quiet. No. And I've, it never even occurred to me to complain about something being built in my area because... That's not what no. city life And the whole point of, of a place like London is that young people are supposed to want to move there to further their careers, to start their careers, to begin their lives, really, their adult lives. And they have a good time. They go out. But as you say, there's less and less of that going on. A lot of companies are now asking people to, to work half the time from home. So like on a Monday and a Friday, sometimes the city is completely deserted in places. Yeah, absolutely. I'm struck by especially... Um, if you go around Fleet Street, where all the... Um, Fleet Street, I can't go there anymore because it used to be where all the newspapers were and it used to be really buzzing yeah. all the time and now it's awful. It's absolutely dead. And it's a real problem in certain industries. I mean, it's definitely true of, of some jobs more than others. For journalism, it's a big problem because often journalists, it's useful for people to be learning from older colleagues when they've just started sharing insights, sharing gossip, sharing yeah. expertise all that jazz. And it's also very bad for the, the, the lawyers and barristers because historically they would basically just follow an older colleague to court and they would learn on the job and then there would be socialising at the pub at the end of the day. And if you if you take that or reduce the amount, um, I think you've taken away something very important in, in the training of new colleagues. Yeah. So so I think the, the work from home works really well for established um, workers who perhaps live in the suburbs and have a bit more space. It's really bad for anyone who's still uh, 
trying to establish themselves and still has a lot yeah, to learn. Absolutely right. Speaking of people who've still got a lot to learn, she's leaving Parliament, but the SNP's Mari Black uh, is sort of going out with a bang, you might say. She's saying that uh, people who are critical of gender ideology are akin to white supremacists, she reckons. My God. I mean, there's just so much going on in what Mari Black <laughs> said. Um, I mean, that's not the only crazy thing she said. She also said that... Um, the, she described her opponents as 50-year-old Karens, um, which is seems very sexist to me and, and perhaps, sorry, ageist, I suppose, yes. but also a bit the idea that if you're, um, that middle-aged feminists have, you know, nothing to, uh, to, their insights are automatically less relevant because they're slightly older just seems like a nonsense to me. And, and what I find really ironic is that she talks about there being bad actors who are kind of radicalizing people online and making them hate stir up hatred against trans people and i just i think have, has she been on tiktok has she seen the videos that are encouraging teenagers to start the process of you know irrevocably mod of changing their body um mutilating healthy breasts having top surgery as they call it yeah. um and if people like mari black got their way um you'd be able to do that from the age of like 16 yeah. onwards it's a bit rich for her to complain about uh, radicalizing people who are vulnerable. Mm. And another thing that she said, this was in a, um, she was speaking at the Edinburgh Fringe, um, which is actually often a place where politicians go and end up saying slightly stupid things that later get reported. Yeah. Um, she said that when you start tracing the money um, that goes into the kind of the gender critical movement, it links back to fundamentalist Christian groups in America Baptist groups, anti-abortion organisers, which is just nonsense. I mean, certainly in Britain, um, the debate has been quite notably led by women of the left, mm. people like Julie Bindle, yeah. um, Moore and J.K. Rowling. Like, no one would call these people sort of dyed-in-the-wall Tories. It's no. just that the kind of blue hair left has chosen to ostracise these women for their beliefs. And it, but that doesn't make them right-wing. Mm. And actually, increasingly, I think, gender ideology and being concerned about it is looking like more and more of a a, a cross-party issue um or at least but for for the voters you know a very great many people of all political hues are worried about the impact of gender ideology yeah. in schools about like women's sports and single sex spaces so I, and i think you would actually have to be a bit weird not to care when let's say a, a biologically male rapist is housed in a women's prison uh, which is what happened in Scotland. Right. Also, there's something rather, I would say, kind of um, gross and odd about a biological male who claims now to be a female shouting at a proper um, biological woman that she's not um, accepting women. And you kind of go, there's something slightly wrong with that whole picture. And people are frightened of describing it as odd, but it really is odd to me. Yeah, and I think these people do a massive disservice to most trans people who, who just want to live their life and um you know live in a way that feels authentic to them and go about their business um i've noticed that within even though there are um i think there are more um trans men uh women biologically male but biological females who've transitioned to mm. men but in the movement it's the uh trans women the biological males who are the most represented and the loudest and it's almost like you know it's just another form of misogyny yeah and it's not a healthy th a development i think for society but we could talk all day madam there's so much to talk about but thank you so much i could i didn't get on to your great comment last night on the first edition about how you know i was amazed at how the the host of the show was 
it's, it's sort of um, showing in how surprised he was that some people who lived in the country actually had septic tanks and, and, and oil an oil-fired central heating. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, well, you can't have a... It's, it's actually very, it's very common because, you know, like a lot of policy is made in London by people who don't really understand what life in the countryside mm. is like. Um, and I grew up in the countryside, so th this was a constant refrain of my childhood. It was like, these people don't understand us. Right. They're trying to regulate us in a way that suggests they, they know nothing about rural life. And some of the net zero stuff very much looks like that. Yeah. The idea that you freeze out the oil heaters by 2026 um, and you expect an old house that might, you know, might have very bad insulation, that it's going to be, you know, not ruinously expensive to install a heat pump, mm. you know, this kind of stuff. Also, that everyone's going to have an electric car in the countryside. Like, yeah. my parents only got reasonable internet about three years ago. So <laughs> I think the idea that yeah. every house in the countryside is going to be collected, connected to the grid is just one for the birds. Yeah, it is absolutely bonkers. Madeline, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Madeline Grant, columnist at The Telegraph. We've a piece in there today about how London is no longer... Uh, the place that it used to be even just five years ago. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We'll talk about that some more this morning. But what about Sadiq Khan and his ridiculous idea that we should make phones less good so that nobody wants to nick them? Is that the best you can do? What's he going to say now uh, for knife crime? Best thing to do is not go out because then you've got less likelihood of being stabbed to death. Brilliant. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots to do, plenty of time to do it in, so do make your calls. We've got an awful lot of you who want to talk as well already uh, this morning. A lot of you want to talk about migrants, a lot of you want to talk about Sadiq Khan. Karen in Kendall says this, I've just finished an assignment working in a part of the Home Office and can confirm firsthand everything takes three times, if not more long, uh, to deliver anything compared to the private sector. That's because of a top-heavy hierarchical organisational structure resulting in delegating until the poor people at the bottom of the chain are are the only ones doing anything. It's also the red tape and governance. At least 60% of civil servants are simply there to mark people's work and create processes to slow things down. I think that's right. That's the problem. There is no accountability. There is no chain of command. There are so many people in upper tiers of management that you have to go through about 55,000 hoops before you can get an OK to do something. And once the OK comes back telling you you can do it, you've forgotten what it was you asked them if you could do it in the first place. That's the problem, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. Uh, a big story on the front pages this morning. Uh, a couple of data breaches. One uh, would appear to be 40 million voters exposed in a cyber attack on the electoral roll. Um, experts are suggesting this might have come uh, from Russia, certainly from people uh, who don't want to do anything good to the country. So if you are on the electoral roll, you might want to be careful uh, who's knocking on your door over the course of the next few weeks and months. And that not, doesn't just mean physically, that means metaphorically and virtually as well. If you're seeing any strange emails, if you're seeing any strange text messages, if you're seeing any strange, you know, uh, conversations and transmissions coming your way, uh, be very careful. Also in Northern Ireland, the name of every police officer has been published in error. Uh, two things which really haven't helped anyone to have a decent week so far. Let's talk to Alan Mendoza, Executive Director of the Henry Jackson Society, to find out uh, exactly what he makes of it all. Alan, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for talking to us. I mean, we hear all the time, don't we, that the Russians are interfering with our elections. Well, now, finally, they might be able to. They've got their hands on the electoral roll. 
Yes, I mean, obviously the actual role itself isn't going to necessarily mean they can actually stuff ballots or, or do things like that. But it's a very worrying breach that they've got access to basically everyone's details. Yeah. Almost everyone in the UK is, who's a voter is on this register. And of course, uh, the data there, uh, if put together with other bits of data, can be very uh, useful for people who might wish to, um, you know, kind of influence the course of an election by spreading disinformation, for example. It doesn't have to be the actual vote stuffing itself. No. No, exactly right. And of course, the difficulty is for me on all of these stories is that this is why I'm always a bit squeamish about governments collecting data on people, because they're not very good at holding on to it. And they're not very good at it not leaking out to the wrong people. Yeah, I mean, that that's obviously the uh, the sort of prime concern when it comes to these things. Of course, uh, the, the electoral register thing wasn't a leak as such. Someone actually hacked in and they had to be pretty sophisticated uh, in order to do it. But it just shows you've got to keep ahead of the game. You've got to make sure uh, as a government that you have to have the uh, secu- data security that the citizens of this country need to to sort of protect their identities. That's clear. Now, the the other issue, the Northern Irish one, that does appear to be a classic, unfortunately, a leak that may have very severe consequences. But both are very worrying. Yeah, they really are. And as far as the uh, sort of ability of people to do this kind of thing, I mean, you obviously study an awful lot of international security issues. I mean, in terms of, you know, the Russians, as it were, I mean, exactly who are the Russians? When we talk about uh, the Russian government, do we talk about uh, the, the new version of the KGB? Exactly who would be doing this? Well, a good, a good example of this was, of course, the Wagner Group. I mean, yeah. uh, Mr. Prigozhin had set up troll factories and internet hacking organisations that went out there to do the Kremlin's bidding, but at a at a distance. So it wasn't, you know, Mr. Putin sitting there on his own uh, computer trying to hack us uh, in that way. But, you know, what is going on is that the Russians have a whole slew of um, criminal enterprises that go out there that extract information. And some of that will be then put back into the Russian state system. Some of it will be used for criminal purposes, which, of course, is the other concern yeah. uh, what if this information is used by crime gangs in various ways and again it's not one piece of information itself being important it's that piece of information plus other things that get collected as yeah. well which is when the problem starts well this is the thing i mean there are scammers out there all the time aren't they i remember being told by by sort of internet security specialists that a lot of these quizzes that that you're asked to take on facebook are designed to kind of get details out about you which are likely to help them um uh, figure out what your passwords might be you know so they're asking for names of pets and that kind of thing uh, so that you think you're doing an innocent little quiz and then it publishes how brilliant you are or not about knowing things but in fact what it is is a fishing expedition to get information on you Absolutely. And I think this highlights the need actually for very good education in terms of internet safety. Uh, this is something that's happening in schools these days. Um, my nine-year-old daughter told me the other day what happened in her internet safety class. So yeah. it does, you know, it does show you that things are happening in this regard. But I think there's a whole generation of people who weren't part of those classes who probably need to understand some of the scams out there. Because of course, the easiest way for someone to get information from you is by you giving it to them accidentally right. or indeed on purpose. Yes. Well, that is the difficulty. And I guess people aren't really still very well versed in all of that aren't they because people will do all manner of things and leave open all sorts of sort of virtual gates in their in their digital world where people from places like russia or from uh, you know crime syndicates can just walk straight in Yes, I mean, this is the, the great danger of the, the internet. It, you know, you, privacy is very limited on there. Um, if you're not aware of what you're doing, even people who are very aware, I mean, the number of times that I get spammed with phishing links of various kinds or attempts to get through, and I'm pretty well versed in all this, every now and again, you know, you do have the temptation, oh, I'm going to click on that, and then you 
catch yourself. But the, the point is that it is a very tricky point. It only requires one click and then you give an access to someone who shouldn't have access to your data, right. uh, the ability to get back in through the back door. I mean, is there anything, and I know I don't appreciate you're not a computer expert on this matter, but I mean, is there anything that people should look out for? I mean, if somebody has got your details from an electoral roll, um, I mean, what could they do? Well, in theory, they could do things like start a company from your address. Um, you, you could have, you know, kind of a fake organisation operating from there claiming to be you. Um, you would then start receiving letters that would mm. confuse you. You could get signed up to all sorts of things uh, because of that, those address details. If they then uh, follow that up with a specific attack to try and get control of your email facilities, then they could do all sorts of things like uh, redirecting your mail. They could actually sort of end up trying to hijack your identity. There is a very serious set of things that could emanate from this, which is why it's such a uh, problematic breach. Yeah, absolutely right. And I mean, we've got Sadiq Khan this morning talking about the theft of phones going on. Uh, so many phones being stolen in London. It's something like 250 a day in 2022. But his answer uh, is rather not technical. He thinks that he's going to uh, appeal to the phone companies to make their phones um, less good so that people don't want to steal them. Seems a bit sort of antediluvian, that, doesn't it? Well, it also seems to be a bit like dodging <laughs> the issue of his policing uh, record. Well, quite. And what's going on in the up, you know, in the run up to the next mayoral election, when the people of London will be will be wondering why their mayor says the solution to crime is to make you know technology more primitive rather than to actually address the criminals and deal with them. Yeah, absolutely right. So, I mean, as far as uh, today's news is concerned, I mean, is it something that the the, the 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 British government should be concerned about? Is it something they should be tightening up on? Yes, I mean, clearly there's going to have to be an, a, a sort of uh, a whole exploration as to how this happened, how the hack occurred, what the uh, level of security is now needed to ensure it doesn't happen again. Um, it is a bit, you know, like uh, closing the stable door after the horse has bolted, but you've got to put these measures in place to prevent the next attack. Because the one thing we can be sure about, Mike, is that there will be a next attack. Because as we move into general election territory, hostile powers, the Russians being the most obvious, but let's not forget China, Iran, North Korea have got form in this field as well um, they will want to try and influence a result in their favour absolutely right alan thank you very much indeed alan mendoza executive director of the henry jackson society on the story about more than 40 million voters exposed in a cyber hack uh, possibly to russian secret service agents and possibly to scam artists all over the world so you might want to just keep a check on what's going on uh, in the next weeks and months to come because more than likely you'll get a very odd phone call at some point or you might get a very odd piece of mail or you might get just the odd WhatsApp message that you can't quite work out. Do let us know if it's started happening already. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. Terry in Slough says, I'm in my 70s. My father fought for this country in the Second World War. If he was alive today to see the state this country is in, he would say, what the hell did I fight for? I agree entirely with Lee Anderson. I think that speaks for an awful lot of people. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. You know what to do. We've got loads of you who want to talk to us and we will get to all of you as well over the course of the next uh, couple of hours. 0344 499 1000. The big stories of the day, similar to yesterday, Robert Jenrick was talking to Kevin O'Sullivan this morning. We'll play you out some of what he had to say about the latest from the Bibby Stockholm and the latest from the migrant situation. Because, of course, many people, and we will hear many of them over the course of the next week or so here in this country, are sick to death, sick to the back to 
Party are being told that we must house all these poor people coming to this country because we have a duty of care to the entire world of people who think that they could have a better life if they came to this country because they're having such a terrible time uh, wherever it is that they came from. We've got people complaining uh, that they can't actually go into a ship, a barge, a Bibby Stockholm uh, bunk bed situation because it might remind them of being hiding from ISIS. Well, you managed to get yourself all the way across Western Europe. You managed to get yourself into a dinghy. You managed to get yourself across the busiest shipping channel in the entire world. You've managed to land on a beach. You've managed to get taken in a coach, which is not massive, up to a hotel where you've also been put in a room. And yet only now, when you are about to go on a barge, which has got 24-hour um, uh, canteen service, which has got a gym, and which has got some pretty decent uh, accoutrements for you uh, people sleeping there for free, including breakfast, including lunch and including dinner, that it now reminds you of being chased by a terrorist death cult. Really? I mean, I know Portland's a bit backward, but it's not that bad. Seriously, it's nothing like ISIS. It's nothing like the middle of Syria in a war zone. It's nothing like any of that. And as for those people who claim that they're frightened of the water... For heaven's sake. I mean, really? Are you having a laugh? I'm all in favour of Suella Braverman locking up these lawyers who are trying to help these people uh, and putting them away for a very, very long time indeed. Uh, Meanwhile, curators of the Mary Rose Museum have been criticised after claiming that objects found on the ship, which famously uh, was the ship uh, that was put out there around Henry VIII's time, has got um, artefacts which may have meaning to the LGBT crowd. I mean, for heaven's sake, we're going to talk to Raf, uh, Rafe Heidel Manku very shortly, senior fellow at the New Culture Forum and a historian as well. Um, much else to do. Uh, how about this from Caroline? She says, hi, Mike. Great show as always. And you and Kevin in the morning just brighten my day. You really make me laugh. My husband works for Daimler Mercedes in Germany, and he tells me that their forklifts and other models, other modes of factory transport, which are electric, are charged overnight in separate areas with special extractor fans as they give off toxic fumes. By the way, Daimler's recently built a massive new plant in Poland where my husband often works for the combustion engine production. So what does that tell you? And Paul in Basildon in Essex says, I've just found this channel Talk TV and I'm very happy as you're saying what we, Joe Public, are all talking about. The MP who said if they don't like it, they can F off back to where they came from. Look after our homeless first and keep up the good information work going. Well, Paul, I'm grateful for your support. And the thing is, Talk TV brings you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We also bring you the opinions that the BBC are too frightened to share. The BBC too frightened to even cover stories that they think might be considered to be somewhat unwoke. Oh, God, no. We can't be covering stories about the migrants and suggesting in any way, shape or form that some people in this country don't actually want hundreds of thousands of migrants coming to this country and living here free of charge, getting free food, uh, getting free accommodation uh, and getting free access to lawyers. Well, I wouldn't mind some of that. I'm sure you wouldn't mind it either. Why do they get it? Let's talk to Rafe Haydel Manku, uh, senior fellow, as we say, at the New Culture Forum. Rafe, very good morning to you, sir. Always a pleasure, Mike. Very nice to talk to you. I guess we've got to kick things off with the uh, the racket that is now the migration business. I mean, if you ever wondered how to make a fortune in this country, uh, you can either set yourself up as a human trafficker, a lawyer, uh, or a hotelier. Take your pick. Yeah, well, I mean, the hotels, you have to actually feel some, some slight sorry for those People who've had you know, the Home Office insisting that they that they take these people on board. My main fear with all of the hotels, of course, are that there's the local tourist economies in these seaside towns, yeah. particularly now in August, you know, peak tourist season. No one can stay overnight. No one can go to these attractions and restaurants and so forth. Uh, people are too intimidated to visit. But yeah, it's these lawyers, you know, and what gets my goat here is that the government must have known 
that the lawyers here were impl were complicit in arranging these bogus application mm. claims. And why has it taken so long for them to actually get a grip of all of this? We've known that this was going on for quite a long time, and it's a scandal that we're only actually seeing the government take some sort of action on this right now. But it goes across all... Also, let's not forget the Refugee Council, all of these NGOs who are clogging all of these matters up before the courts, doing everything they can to put obstacles in the way of what the British people want. You know, all of this is a distraction. Nobody really wants to talk about migrant housing. We just want them to stop coming over here. And all of these dead cats that are being put forward on the table by the Conservative government are just ways of obfuscating and getting the attention away from the reality that for 13 years they've completely neglected this entire issue. I'm sorry, but 500 people on a barge, 2,000 people in tents is a drop in the ocean when you have 50,000 people in hotel right. rooms in this well, country. Not only do we have 50, 000, housing. Well, not only do we have 50,000 people in hotels in this country, but we supposedly have 170,000 people um, waiting for an asylum application to be processed. Now, by my mathematics, rudimentary as it may be, that means 120,000 people are somewhere other than hotels awaiting um, uh, a processing uh, policy to go through. Now, where are all those people? Are they in houses? Are they in apartments? Where are they? Well, we've just had the sickening scandal recently, didn't we, last week in Chelmsford in Essex, where a unit to, uh, with nine, a building for 98 units was requisitioned by the Home Office at the protest of the local council in order to house migrants. So we have migrants living in luxury, brand spanking new flats, when there are waiting lists in Chelmsford in Essex, where people have been waiting for years to get out of their substandard housing, in many cases with mould leading to health and yeah. other respiratory illnesses, and they're being put on the back burner in order to prioritise migrants. You know, the solution here isn't difficult. No, not a single migrant should be in any of these hotels or in any of these apartments. No. They should be in migrant camps. And you can build these camps very easily on military bases and other remote locations, such as in the, the north of Scotland, and empty out all of the hotels. You know, we had British soldiers living during the 20th century in Nissan huts, no in barracks. Yes. The Polish army was based there after the Second World War. They couldn't go back to communist Poland under Stalin. So they had, they lived in camps for years with mm. their wives and with their children. And these were Battle of Britain pilots. Yes. These were soldiers who fought for king and country, for our empire. If it was good enough for them in the 1940s, I don't see why it's not good enough for illegal migrants today when modern technology is far superior. Exactly right. Robert Jenrick was on this morning on Talk TV with Kevin O'Sullivan. He was asked about uh, whether in fact uh, we should be treating migrants better or whether they should be uh, being given uh, accommodation in the heart of communities which haven't asked for them to be there. Here's what he said. Well, I think he does speak for uh, the vast majority of the British public. We want the UK to be a generous country, but th that generosity has limits. And if people say that they're destitute and want to rely on the British taxpayer to house them and support them, uh, they should accept the accommodation that's an offer. And whether that be the barge or the disused military sites we're bringing forwards, these will always be decent and legally compliant forms of accommodation, but they shouldn't be luxurious. We can't find ourselves in a position where illegal migrants uh, are able to pick and choose which four-star hotel they want to stay in uh, and in which part of the country. That's not right. Mm. That wouldn't be fair to the taxpayer. And that's not the approach we're going to take. And so... If individuals don't move to uh, the barge, then we will consider removing their asylum support and they have to look after themselves. But I hope that they'll change their minds. 
Robert Jenry, the Ministry of State for Immigration uh, there, Rafe, saying that they will consider removing uh, their asylum status. Now, yesterday they were going to remove their asylum status. It seems to have moved slightly more subtly. Uh, to we will consider removing it, which is not a very encouraging sound for me. No, I mean, there should be a take it or leave it. Yeah. You know, and I really don't think, that, you know, that the, the lefty do-gooders here have a clue about the squalid living conditions that many of these migrants uh, endured in their in their home countries. You know, we're, we're sort of rather cocooned and cushioned from the reality of life for many people here. And we think not having, you know, a Sainsbury's down the road is, is you know, is something that is intolerable. You know, in many cases, we're talking about people who were living in shanty towns, with, you know, corrugated right. iron tracks and worse no running water, communal latrines. You know, for them, a run-down, one-star hotel is luxurious. <laughs> you know, and we've all seen footage of, you know, of, of the rooms on this barge. And I'm sorry, but tourists in London today pay over £100 a night to live exactly like mm. that in rooms that size and smaller. And for those of us, you know, who grew up in the 1970s, I would say that these are luxurious conditions. You know, when you've just said earlier, you know, three meals a day with international cuisine, entertainment rooms, a gym, excursions and activities, that's better than Butlins. Yeah, well, I've got even more bad news for the champagne socialist lefties who have never seen a bunk bed in a room uh, aside from when they were at boarding school. You know, the bottom line is that actually there's an awful lot of people in Britain living in more squalor than these people are being put up in because this uh, Bibi Stockholm has just been refurbished. It's got all uh, manner of uh, brand new uh, accoutrements in there. They've got uh, a gym. They've got uh, free food. Uh, somebody pointed out to me today they could see that the food that was laid out on the table, they're actually eating branded cereal, which for so many people now is actually too expensive to buy because they have to buy the sort of the local supermarket brand. So, you know, it's ludicrous to say that they're being treated in an inhumane manner. And these people from Care for Calais are having a laugh aren't they? Yes, look, and you know, no one's going out to have to do the shopping, having to prep and cook the food is being served to you. It literally is a Butlin's holiday camp yeah. style environment that they're in. But you know, I think actually that the government may uh, be listening to talk TV because since 2016, I, I was a lone voice calling for the Ascension Island, yes. one of the British overseas territories to be used. Now, back then, I was thought to be beyond the pale for arguing for that. But just last week, actually, I, I raised it again with Richard Tice on this very channel. And three days later, we got the government reports that they're actually considering it. Right. So I don't know whether they're watching talk TV or not, but that's the solution. <laughs> Forget the barges. The government should get old cruise ships, take anybody who's on the channel onto the cruise ship so they never set foot on British territory. Once that cruise ship is filled up, sail it off, to, for processing at the Ascension Islands. That's the solution, because I tell you, a hotel room here is not a deterrent, but a windswept island in the South Atlantic is a deterrent. Well, it might be not only a deterrent, but the journey down there might upset a few of them as well, and that's, I think, where we want to go. We want to make sure these people don't come to this country as opposed to trying to figure out what to do with them once they get here. I think that's the overall view of most people in this country, apart from people who live in Islington. Uh, Rafe, thanks very much indeed. Stay with us if you would. I want to talk to you about a couple of other stories, not least the Mary Rose. The museum, apparently, has been criticised after claiming objects found uh, on that ancient Henry VIII time ship uh, have got meanings in the LGBT world. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Rafe Hadel, Mancou, senior fellow at the New Culture Forum, and a man who knows a thing or two about history. Uh, and it might have amused you to see this one, Rafe, that uh, curators of the Mary Rose Museum decided that uh, they wanted to use queerness as an interpretative tool uh, to link objects, including a mirror, some combs and a gold ring, to present-day understandings of LGBT sexualities during Tudor times. What do you make of it? Well, you know, they always say August is silly season for the news, <laughs> and this definitely ranks right up there. We're talking about a ship, Henry VIII's flagship, that was uh, launched in 1511, long before there was even any notion of, of, of homosexuality. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sexuality and so forth. You know, Churchill is alleged to have once said that the three traditions of the Royal Navy are rum, sodomy and the lash. Yes. So there certainly was, uh, you know... Uh, Roger the cabin boy would have probably been looking over his shoulder quite frequently <laughs> in, in a prison-style setting like that. Mm. But the idea that, you know, uh, there's a queer identity to, uh, to, to uh, the, the, the lives of the Tudors is, is absolute tosh and nonsense. Yes. But I think that, you know, the museum here was missing, missing a trick here. You know, we just had Pride Month. I'm surprised they didn't have a, a drag queen called Mary Rose dressed up as the ship's figurehead walking around <laughs> handing out... This, it is, it is amazing, isn't it? It's like, could we possibly draw, you know, some completely made-up narrative gently towards the truth of history? And let's rewrite history after all. Why don't we just rewrite all of it? And why just go all the way back to the beginning, uh, all the way back to Adam and Eve, and just come up with a completely different story of how it all happened? But that's what we're getting. We're getting the rewriting of our history. This is almost like going back just to the year zero. And um, the great problem here, of course, this is just part of the larger march through the institutions that we've seen. And the most distressing areas are where we see it in education and in our museums, from the National Trust to the British mm. Museum, the British Library, decolonizing their collections. Because, of course, young minds are being shaped by visits to the Mary Rose, yes. by visits to the British Museum. And they're getting all of these... The, this. A critical race theory and gender ideology of schools is then being reinforced in perverted ways by having history literally twisted. This is what happened in, in, in communist regimes, yeah. of course, where you just totally subverted the reality and the truth. And that's why we're seeing for the first time ever amongst those under 25 
a hardening of left-wing attitudes where people used to, for example, become more conservative as they got on the property ladder and so forth, or they can't get on the property ladder, and their, their left-leaning <laughs> views are not mellowing over time. And the Tory party had 13 years to take account of this fact. Their voter base is getting very old and is dying off. And it's not being replenished by, 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 by youth of today. And yet they've done nothing to try to tackle this increasing woke madness yeah. that's infected all of our public institutions. Yes, no, I know. It's a bit worrying, isn't it? I can't wait for the trans ideologists to get their hands on the mummified Egyptian section at the British Museum and see what they come up with as to what was going on in Egypt in those, uh, in those dark days. But listen, very Great I suppose we can still call them mummies, you know. <laughs> I'm sure that'll change. Uh, Rafe, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Rafe Hadel, Mancou, Senior Fellow at the New Culture Forum. There are some very odd things going on out there. And much of what we have to suffer from, I'm afraid, comes from the world of academia, comes from the world of our politicians. Uh, one of the things we, we talk about an awful lot, and we've talked already about Sadiq Khan this morning, who basically thinks that it's a good idea uh, to make phones worse in order for them not to be stolen. Uh, somebody suggested to me maybe he could give Rolex a call and ask them not to make such nice watches, and then nobody would want to nick those either. What a great idea. In fact, get absolutely every single thing that's worth stealing, uh, wrapped it down into, into something that isn't worth stealing and then isn't worth owning and then isn't worth having, and then nobody will want it. I mean, what sort of world is he living on? For heaven's sake, one of the things that they want to do, of course, in London, as in uh, every other part of the country, uh, is to introduce low traffic neighbourhoods, is to introduce ultra low emission zones. Nothing to do with cleaning the air, of course, everything to do uh, with being anti-car, being anti-business and being basically pro-money. Because that's what it's all about. They want to collect money uh, and they want to put you out of business. Let's talk to Clint Pugh, who's a bar owner, a restaurateur uh, up in Oxford. We spoke to him before. Um, he's been talking uh, over the last few days about how bollards have been introduced all over the country into low traffic neighbourhoods. Basically, uh, Rishi Sunak says he wants to have a look at these low traffic neighbourhood schemes and see uh, whether they might actually be a bit premature and they might actually not be something that the local people want. And Clint, um, very good morning to you. I know that you and I have spoken before. Um, yeah. Your restaurants have been uh, the main victims of some of this policy uh, over the, uh, the course of time. People just don't walk down streets. People don't drive down streets. People don't go to those streets that are behind these, these sort of boxes and bollards, do they? You know, the crazy thing, as I mentioned to you before, you know, we, I, our, my businesses are on the road called the Cowdy Road, yeah. very, very important road that comes into Oxford in parallel with another road called Lippley Road. They blocked 1.2 miles of roads. They took away single yellow line yeah. traffic uh, parking, which meant the people from the Shire can't get in. Right. And it's been made blatantly obvious they don't want anybody else but those that live in those little communities to somehow support the over 200 businesses, most of which English is their second language. Yeah. Um, they didn't do this in North Oxford, where all the money, the you know, where the wealthy houses live. They deliberately did it in an area. They're not listening. They haven't done anything to try and make it easier. Mm. Um, our local MP, at least um, Mrs Dodds, has not bothered to speak to businesses. I don't know one she's actually spoken to. None of the councillors seem to come back, apart from the odd one, and then nothing's done. Um, and they even had a... We've, we've got this thing called... Um, the five-minute cities or whatever, or 15-minute oh. cities that they want to introduce. And at a meeting, 
Um, I was called a liar because I said no one had come to see me by one councillor called Andrew Gant, who's been called out numerous times, won't apologise. The only one councillor, a Labour councillor called Mark Largo, who voted against this, saying, look, there wasn't enough information for it. The poor guy's been pushed off the committee and he's not allowed to speak to anyone. This this is not democracy, is it? It really this isn't. Is, is not what, and then everyone goes, well, why do you vote? Why can't you vote them out? Well, they were voted in by our roads are controlled by the county council, not the city council. And uh, the county council is obviously voted in by all the people that live in the villages. Now, they unfortunately didn't know that this is what's going to happen. Mm. So we can't get rid of these councillors, most of them, because they don't even live in the city anyway. No, of course. And they've managed to get themselves sort of hooked into the uh, uh, the vetting process and the voting process. And it is much more difficult. Our democracy is not what it looks like, I'm afraid. It, and it, I mean, it, these 15 minute cities, I mean, you might as well say uh, 15 minutes is how long you've got before you can shut the business and move everything out because nobody's I mean, coming. And there's, and there's no sympathy for us businesses. I'm, I'm called out as if, you know, it's all right for you, Mr. Pugh. You've got one road that is an LTN, which took me 18 years. You know, it was it was closed via a Green councillor called Craig Simmons. He was the one that suggested doing it 18 years ago. And it took 18 right. years before the council actually did something about it. And it took a pandemic for that to happen. Right. They pushed this all through during, as we were coming out of COVID. Nobody knew what an LTN was. No, exactly it, right. They did it quite often by stealth as well. What they say, Oxfordshire County Council claim, right, that this policy of theirs creates quieter and safer streets where residents may feel more comfortable when making local journeys by cycling, wheeling or on foot. I mean, is that well, your experience? You've got a business no, there. Of course. Is it I mean, safer? It's course for fine for those people that live in some of these roads that work from home, you know, they're uh, usually probably middle class. You know, they, the working the poor people that have got to travel around or old people have got to get to hospital and stuff. It just doesn't. People are trapped for hours in their yeah. car. More pollution. I mean, I, I was ambushed on the Jeremy Vine show the other day. We all know he's a he's a cyclist. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with with eco warriors and everyone trying to make a cleaner, cleaner world. We know we need to do something is how they do it. Mm. And the, the awful thing was on the Jeremy Vine show. He wouldn't actually let me speak. Right. They asked me a question, completely bullied me, and it's wrong. The BBC should be impartial. They should be allowed to let other people have a discussion. The same thing happened on the Panorama programme. Oh. They didn't really report it properly. So we, we're all we're all made to look out that we're all anti, you know, we're all just mad car drivers. I mean, yeah. I don't know anyone that that, you know, a normal person that drives a car around that needs to get about because there are no proper infrastructures in place to compensate no. for the removal of cars yet. You know, in Oxford, we don't have an underground system, uh, although I know there's criticism of that being not clean um, as well. But we, until we come up with some proper alternatives, mm. you can't expect to everybody suddenly get off on their bike and drive, go around this country. It's not going to happen. No. We all know. Well, also, happen. I mean, where my children live in Sussex, for example, you can't go anywhere unless you've got a car. You can get a train to London if they happen to be running. You can get a yeah. train to, you know, Tunbridge Wells or Sevenoaks, but you can't get a train uh, to Bexhill uh, from anywhere else in Sussex unless you change yeah. about three times and you've got two hours to spare. So, you know, well, it's not designed for people to actually get around on public transport. There are no buses to speak of, and so cars yeah. are the only way to get anywhere. Yeah, they're crazy. I mean, why? I mean, the government, I mean, unfortunately, you know, I, I, look, I politically, I, I sway whichever way I want to vote and I voted for everybody. But until we actually have a proper... They're all just uh, as bad as each other, aren't they? Let's get the railways working again, for God's sake. It obviously doesn't work them being privatised. Mm. Um, you know, they need to come back into national ownership. They need to actually run properly. I mean, I came back from a holiday at Birmingham Airport 
at nine o'clock in the evening, yeah. there were no trains. <laughs> there, were, there was nobody in a ticket office to yeah. talk to about this. Right. There was no alternative. You know, and in the end, I had to get a taxi because I couldn't get back. I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, we need a proper infrastructure put into place. I mean, and if they're going to move over to electric cars, we need to have proper charging places all over the country. And let's do the job properly. Mm. You can't keep half-heartedly doing things. Yeah, but I mean, look at Sadiq Khan. Sadiq Khan's answer to those critics who say, you know, this ULEZ scheme of yours is simply about making money. It's not about cleaning the air. He says, oh, well, don't worry. If you don't qualify for your car uh, to be exempt, we'll give you 2,000 quid and you can get Where's a new car. Well, who, who's giving him the money? It's my money. It's your money. He's taking money know. from the taxpayer I mean, and he's giving I mean, it. And also, what kind of car can you buy for 2,000 quid? Well, if you, exactly. If you've I mean, got they, one that's worth the, six. It's not the ones that fit their criteria. I mean, we have the same thing in Oxford with this, this so-called 15-minute cities. They're mm. not saying electric cars are fine. They don't want any cars. Mm. And this is just a war against cars. And it is unfortunately going to hit the working class people more than anything else. Yeah. They can't afford to change their cars. You know, we were all encouraged to buy diesel cars a few years we back. Were. No one seems to be talking about that. I don't understand how, you know, they chop and change. We all seem to do what we were supposed to be doing. And next thing you know, we're the victims. Yeah. It's, uh, it's exactly. wrong. Well, it could be worse. I mean, you could be living in New York City where, uh, as, a, as a restaurateur, you'd have been told uh, you can't have a gas cooker uh, because they tried that on uh, from the state legislature. Right. And then the governor realised it was a really bad mistake because every bloke that owned a restaurant in New York said, this is madness, we need gas cookers, it's the best way to cook food. And so they've now gone back on that, but they basically said, if you've got a gas cooker, you can keep it, but if you've got a new restaurant, you have to have an electric one. Yeah. It's uh, mad, well, isn't it? It's, it's, it's hard enough as it is. I uh, mean, don't, yeah. we've just gone through COVID. We're, we're suffering hugely from uh, inflation caused by the insane war on Ukraine yeah. by Russia. Um, and not only that, obviously, we've now got our own, but the Bank of England are sticking up the interest rate, saying they're going to curb inflation. And I don't understand. It's the energy companies, of course, is problem. Why yeah. they make billions of pounds of profit. Again, also, I think they should be nationalised as well, because it obviously shows that they're not worth doing this in our interests, are they? They're really you not. Know? I mean, you, know, you, know, should, I you should be, listen, you, Clint, you are now becoming very fast. And I don't know whether you want this particular uh, honour, but you are now a, a very welcome member of the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, because this is where we talk <laughs> common sense. It's not about politics. It's, it's, it's not, it's it's not, not about, about left or right. It's about no, it's just really, common sense, yeah. man. Mike, you need to hear something very funny. After I came off your show last time and you asked me about the sign on the side of the wall and I said, look, I, I, was, I have my son, Toby Sebastian, because he was in a show. And anyway, that's poster is still up there. The following day, because yeah. I said a new sign was going up, the council, when they had Oxford City Council, hand-delivered. They're quite happy to waste the money of the taxpayer to hand-deliver a, a demand saying they're going to take me to court if I don't take that sign down, which has been there for 30-odd years. Yeah. You know, absolute madness. Right. You know, well, I'm glad you're watching. Tell them, tell them, tell them. We all know. But we all know they couldn't rely on the post because they sent it first class. It would take two weeks to get here. Yeah, so, uh, if at yeah. all. If at all. Well, listen, I'm glad they're watching the show, um, Clint, you know, because everybody is these days because it's the only place to find any sort of sense at all, you know, because we've got a government that doesn't know what it's doing. We've got civil service. The only thing they're good for is employing more people in the civil service and not actually doing anything at all. Local government is expanding faster than you can say, you know, pound in your pocket. There's literally nothing that works. And meanwhile, they're shutting down businesses like yours that create jobs for the people locally and create tax revenue for the state. But they don't want that anymore because they think money grows on trees, literally. 
He's gone. He's been taken out by uh, some sniper from Oxford Council. That's a joke, by the way. If anybody thinks I'm serious, do not take me too seriously at all times. There can be times when you can have a laugh as well. Now, coming up, uh, we're going to take loads of your calls. We are going to actually talk to some sensible people, i.e. loads of you, after this, right here on Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. I've got this from Matthew uh, about Buxton. I'm not quite sure what the story is in Buxton, but he says, Mike, the BBC did three interviews with locals in Buxton yesterday. They didn't show one on television. Is that presumably to do with the migrant crisis? I wouldn't be at all surprised because they're not interested uh, in the views of the ordinary people on the BBC. The BBC is all about pushing an agenda, right? The BBC only cares if you say something that they'd want you to say, and then they'll put it out. If you say something they don't want you to say, they won't actually publish it at all. If you remember the coverage of the Brexit uh, rally, if you remember the coverage of the night that Brexit actually happened, that great um, sort of uh, celebration that took place in Parliament Square uh, down in Westminster, outside of the Houses of Parliament, uh, where Julie Hartley Brewer spoke, uh, where Nigel Farage spoke, where a whole bunch of people celebrated the fact that we had left the European Union and it was a night of great joy and celebration, apart, from, of course, from the uh, the Ramonas of this world who were sitting weeping uh, into their, um, you know, vegan food inside the Volvo because they couldn't get out of the traffic. These people could not stand it. And the people at the BBC couldn't stand it either. So they tried to create this kind of narrative where everybody who was at this celebration was white, which apparently is a crime, according to the BBC. And all they would do was go on and on and on at how awful it all was. I mean, just ridiculous. Um, why can't we make use of these migrants? We are paying for their keep but getting nothing in return. Get them all litter-picking virgins and other tasks that councils say they can't afford anymore. Well, listen, one of the things that I find extraordinary uh, is that the government says that these people can't work. It's one thing to say, you know, 25 people that come into the country illegally can't work. But it's another thing to say 170,000 of them can't for heaven's sake. Um, John in Sutton says, Mike, I was born in Clapham in 1963. I moved out to Sutton 13 years ago to get away from the drug dealing and violent robberies. If I had the means to move further out of London, I would. Well, yeah, because Sutton isn't exactly um, the leafy suburbs anymore either, I would have thought. Uh, Mike, I read a report that Oxford Street is dying. Our once go-to shopping destination is now full of homeless people and sweet shops, says Don in Chelmsford. Uh, well, that's true too. Oxford Street has become a place for rack and ruin. Uh, kids run in and out of shops, looting them. You've got all those kind of money laundering operations that are going on uh, with those ridiculous sweet shops. You've got an awful lot of homeless people who sit from one place to another. They sit on each block and they've all got the same sign written in the same handwriting because they're not actually homeless. They're actually professional beggars. And that is another problem. But let's talk to Elliot Keck now from the Taxpayers Alliance because uh, it was the Taxpayers Alliance who very kindly uh, did us all a favour this morning by pointing out that there are now more civil servants on over £100,000 a year than there have ever been. And the number of civil servants have actually grown since 2016 by a figure of about 100,000. Elliot, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike, and uh, happy birthday from everybody at the... And that's TP very kind. Very kind of you. I mean, this is, I mean it's, it's a happy birthday every day if you work in the civil service, right? Because you can allow yourself a bit more uh, time off. You can work a few more days from home. You can take a bit more holiday, uh, top up your pension a bit from time to time. And when you ask for an increase in your salary, even though there's a, a cap on it, you can get that as well. 
Well, absolutely. I think what we're seeing is a civil service that is so detached from reality, it's almost in a parallel universe. What we have seen since 2016 is a massive growth in the overall civil service. We've seen a growth in the total salary bill. We've seen an increase in the average salary. But I think most shockingly for viewers is we've seen an increase in the number of the highest paid roles and actually a proportional decrease in those roles that uh, deliver frontline Mm. services. So it's exactly what the taxpayer does not want. It's more top paid management jobs and fewer people actually delivering services. Yeah, exactly. And who's watching the civil service? Because apart from you guys keeping an eye on what they're doing, I mean, is there not supposed to be some kind of uh, organisation that keeps tabs on what they're doing? Because if the government issues, um, you know, guidelines which say you cannot get more than a 1% pay rise and they somehow end up getting 26%, I mean, that's quite a big gap, isn't it? Yeah, so what's happened there was although the individual pay bands have been set at a relatively similar level over the years, what has happened within the civil service is people have just been shuffled up the ranks. So what we've seen is pay rise through promotion. And promotion is normally, in most organisations, linked to performance. You have to be doing a good job. And I think when people look at the state of public services in in this country, from the NHS to the police, Uh, to uh, housing, it's very, very difficult to claim that civil servants are deserving a uh, prettier pay packet based on what we've seen. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, what happened to the sort of bonfire of the Quangos, the the, uh, Dominic Cummings-led attack on the civil service? I know he wasn't able to stay the course for one reason or another, but I was reading the other day that the Department of, of Health and Social Care has had a number of civil servants kind of shaved off it, if you like, um, because Stephen mm-hmm. Bartley's been able to do that. Um, is there any other department that's looking in that direction? And kudos to Steve Barclay for that. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, has written to all departments asking them to find cost-saving measures. So that's certainly something the government claimed to be looking at. But as you said on the bonfire of the Quangos point, we've heard the government promise many times. We heard Boris Johnson say that he wanted to cut civil service numbers by about 90,000. And it's never really been done. So I think the proof will be in the pudding, as always. Yeah, absolutely right. But I mean, it is extraordinary that there doesn't appear to be any sort of financial or fiscal responsibility. You know, these... uh, um, uh, these budgets get handed out and we get told every single year the Treasury is going to be very tough uh, on any new projects in the Ministry of Defence. They're going to be very tough on any new projects in, uh, in, 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 in health care. And yet they keep finding more and more money to spend. And the government is now so big. The business of government is bigger than it's ever been, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think what keeps on happening is every couple of years, there's this new uh, emergency that requires a significant temporary increase in the number of civil servants. And there's nothing more temporary than a government programme. So we had Brexit in 2016, which, of course, did require an increased number of border control officials, trade experts, etc. We then had COVID, which, of course, required uh, more people to help uh, monitor those programmes. And I suppose we now have net zero. But every single time we have these temporary uplifts, what we find is that temporary becomes permanent and it becomes baked in. And that's how you have a 25% increase in the numbers of civil servants from 2016 to 2023. Right. And I mean, in terms of uh, who you would complain to, say, as a taxpayer, as we all are, or at least most of us are, I mean, is there somebody you could write to? Because I know there'll be people listening to this right now, Elliot, who will be absolutely hopping mad. I've got a text here from uh, Paul in Torquay who says this, I live in Torquay and I checked the wages of the council, seven heads of department, £1 million a year, and we are told there is no money for the elderly. It's disgusting. You know, if you look into, as you would know better than anybody, any one of these organisations, whether it's a local council, whether it's a quango, whether it's some kind of, um, you know, government department uh, or, or, or sort of a, 
an offshoot of one. You know, the money they've got to spend is prodigious, and yet there doesn't seem to be anybody keeping a check on it. Well, absolutely. And we do our best and people are more than willing to support us. But otherwise, it's about, you know, uh, emailing your MP, emailing your councillor and saying that you're absolutely fed up and asking them to take a firmer line. It wouldn't be that difficult. If the civil service just placed a freeze on new hires and reshuffled roles as people departed, that would make a very significant dent. But we need to see a bit of bravery and courage from top Mm. bosses. Yes. And is there a place to, to, to send correspondence in some way, shape or form? Well, councillors and MPs have their uh, email addresses online, so I would certainly invite people to look there. Go on the Taxpayers Alliance Town Hall Rich List, our latest research to see how many of your bosses in councils, how many bosses in the civil service are earning uh, the big bucks and uh, really actually start to scrutinise some of these people for the performance that they're putting in. Yeah, well, I think apart from anything else, one of the the things that the refrains I hear a lot of is that, you know, we might be getting more and more uh, expensive councils and and civil servants, but what we're not getting is better service. You know, what Mm. we're now getting is a worse service, but we're paying more for it. Yeah, rather than succeeding at a few things, the state is failing at many, and I think that's the problem that we're facing at the moment. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Well, great work as ever, Elliot. Thank you very much indeed. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, got some great uh, comments coming in, got some great suggestions coming in for how to solve all sorts of crises in the world. Uh, in this hour, Annabelle Denham joins us, Deputy Comment Editor uh, from The Telegraph. We'll also be finding out just who's bankrolling the Tony Blair Institute because it turns out uh, that there's an awful lot of money going into the coffers of the former Prime Minister of this great nation of ours. Uh, and you'd be amazed at the numbers of people that he's employing, the amounts of millions that he's getting. And it's all coming from America. And of course, Tony Blair, the man himself, uh, is talking this week about how eventually we will be rejoining the European Union. And he's got an awful lot of money uh, with which to tell people why that's a good idea. I suspect there's an awful lot of Tony Blair Institute money going into all sorts of places that we don't even know. Maybe what we should do uh, is a deep dive into the Tony Blair Institute just to discover precisely what they are funding in addition to where their funding is coming from. Fascinating stuff. We're going to be talking to Annabelle uh, this morning about Sadiq Khan. He's come out today uh, along with Sir Mark Rowley, the head of the Metropolitan Police, to say basically uh, that what he wants people to do in the telephone business is to make the telephones more uh, useless. In other words, more worthless, because he believes that one of the problems that we've got in London is that too many people are having their phones stolen. And if only their phones were not so useful, they wouldn't be stolen. He claims that this was something that worked with the car industry, right? He's claiming that because cars uh, and car manufacturers were somehow convinced to uh, put their radios and their various different CD players and various different um, streaming services inside the dashboard of the car, uh, that they wouldn't be stolen so easily, right? Because you might remember a time back in the day when you could actually take the radio out of the car and take it into your house. So if they wanted to try and steal it, there was nothing there. We've now got to a case where they don't steal the radio anymore, they just take the entire car. So, in fact, he hasn't stopped people stealing radios, it's just that the radio goes with the car when they steal the car. That's the problem. Um, And obviously, he has no clue what he's talking about. There's already the ability to lock phones, there's already the ability to make the phone incapable of being used by somebody who steals it. But the point about thieves is that they're rather good at getting around security. They're rather good at getting around the things that supposedly stop them from accessing your phone. They just take it to a shop somewhere uh, in a Chinatown or elsewhere and somebody breaks the phone open for them. 
It's as simple as that. By the way, since the big uh, data breach, since the Russians have been coming, I've received two uh, COD phone calls on my phone just while I've been on the air, one from India uh, and one from Hawaii. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Let's talk to Annabelle Denham and find out what's going on. Annabelle, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. We will talk as well about the water companies who are facing a massive class action suit, which I rather like the look of as well. But let's talk about Sadiq Khan and this rather bizarre idea of his that, you know, if your phone wasn't worth so much money, somebody wouldn't steal it. It's kind of an odd political manoeuvre, isn't it? It's an act of complete desperation and an admission that they're unable to tackle crime across the capital. And we've known for a long time that this is a growing problem, not least the fact that shoplifting has become decriminalised. And I say this on the day when we're expecting some bizarre mass shoplifting yes. event to take place in central London and more police have been deployed to the area. Um, but no, it, you know, the number of burglaries that are being uh, reported and then solved and leading to convictions is shockingly low. Uh, supermarkets record, uh, rec reporting ever increasing numbers of people coming in and shoplifting. There's a sense now that parcel theft off your doorstep is becoming an organised crime. And it, it's simply the case that our politicians don't have the answers. Mm. And all that they are left to do is to blame the majority of the British public who do, to obey the laws who are not criminals and try to suggest that actually it's their fault and that they're partly to blame because there they are brandishing, waving around objects that other people might want to steal. The whole thing is completely preposterous. It really is. I mean, there's not a suggestion that perhaps it's because there are so few police on the streets, as you say, uh, that these kinds of acts are carried out. I mean, I know more and more people now uh, on a daily basis who tell me basically that either they or one of their friends has had a phone literally snatched out of their hand as they were standing looking at it. And, I've, and I tell my kids, I tell anybody who, who's visiting London, don't actually get your phone out on the street because it's that dangerous. No, I mean, it's true, of course, that phones are becoming increasingly valuable now. You know, an iPhone can cost around £1,000, which is I I extremely high. And I mean, that's what I, that's what I call daylight <laughs> robbery. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can see these obviously high value uh, objects, but that doesn't excuse the fact that people are going around and stealing them. They're going on bikes, they're going on mopeds, scooters, uh, and it, it's so easily done. And like you say, there's this lack of police presence on the streets. We There's a sense that there are just simply fewer bobbies on the beat. There's inadequate investment going into our police force across the country. It's not just unique to uh, London. That's partly because the government is spending so much money uh, on other areas not least the healthcare service and we've got to do something about crime because it's feeding into this wider sense of malaise that we have in britain today about things like the rule of law about policing about crime um it, you know it feeds into absolutely everything it's problematic not just for steep calm but i think the current government there's a sense that they just simply haven't been tough on crime and labor are now parking their t uh, tanks on the tory lawn saying that they're going to be the ones who clamp down on antisocial uh, behaviour. Now, whether they actually bring in the policies necessary to do so, let's see in a couple of years' time, I have my doubts. But um, it's nonetheless politically uh, a very big problem. And of course, it's not just the phones, Mike, as well. It's bikes. The yeah. number of people I know who've had their bikes stolen, who've gone to the trouble of report reporting it, have just been given a crime reference number for the insurance purposes. And that's it. Yeah. Nothing happens. They never hear anything about it again. It, there is a real sense that this is just being decriminalised. Yeah, no, totally. But I mean, the trouble is, is that because London is now such a sort of teeming city, 
Um, and so many people are uh, going about their business in different ways. There's an awful lot of tourists around, for example, at the moment, I've noticed. And, and you know that in any city where there's a lot of tourists, there will always be an awful lot of low, what they call low-level theft and low-level crime because most of the tourists will never have, have a chance to kind of uh, get their stuff back. And so, you know, the Metropolitan Police, to join in with Sadiq Khan today, is part of that kind of calm, calmly uh, sort of monitoring thing that goes on now where they're talking to you about, you know, what you should be doing, how you should be living your life, the kinds of ways you should be uh, thinking about travelling, you know, the, the, the sort of the nudge units, I suppose, of, of, of the world is what I'm talking about. Similarly, I mean, you, you uh, retweeted a piece from the BBC about this committee that sat down with Nike and Adidas and started talking to them about female football boots. You know, you know the, the business of government has been forgotten. We've now got this massive government that's so huge with so many civil servants in it that they want to tell us how to live as opposed to just making sure that we have the freedom to be safe, the freedom to spend our own money and the freedom to do what we want. That's right. And I think it was a problem before the pandemic, but it's been so entrenched by lockdown, by how compliant the British public were, by the fact that some politicians saw the coronavirus as this huge opportunity mm. to implement more nanny state measures, to nudge, as you say, Mike, the rise of behavioural science. Uh, and that really came into its own during those three years of the pandemic. And there's this you know, feeling that our behaviour is just being constantly, constantly controlled by politicians who ought to be going about the business of government. If we're going to have a national healthcare service well let's look at how we can make it more efficient why is it that you know pupils are getting a level results that they're almost guaranteed to be disappointed with next week why is it that students are graduating and they haven't got their degree classifications because lecturers are going on strike and there's a marking boycott there are so many problems everywhere you look the national debt is going up inflation has remained sticky and we've got politicians fiddling really while britain burns and you know the whole Whole thing is completely ridiculous and as i say you know this nanny statism this control on our behavior feeds into that mm. and sadiq khan is particularly culpable because it's only a couple of weeks ago that he introduced that absurd mate campaign to try and encourage i think men to nudge uh, other men into behaving more appropriately around women not to make comments in the hope that that could lead to fewer instances of sexual assault we had that poster um for a play i think it was that had a cake on it that they tried to ban because uh, it was actually encouraging people to eat unhealthily you know all of these distractions from actually making the difficult choices that are going to have a proper measurable impact on people's lives. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, there was an incredible um, study that, that was put out by Sadiq Khan again yesterday, because you know he's now sort of chasing the ULEZ vote as fast as he can, because he's now worried after what happened in Uxbridge that ULEZ could be his undoing. So he's now sort of bringing in more and more so-called evidence to back his claim that clean air needs to be cleaner, despite the fact that his ULEZ um, plans won't actually make it any cleaner. Uh, he's now said that there's a report out which links um, the sort of resistance to antibiotics to um, clean air and pollution inside the city. And if you read the report, it actually says there is no provable link between the two things. There has not been any study done of why there could be a link. But because some people have said there might be a link, he says there is a link. And so therefore, not only do you need to pay to drive in London now in order to save the city and the planet, you need to drive in London and pay to drive in London in order to stop people from being um, immune to antibiotics. I mean, it's literally a crock of nonsense. 
certainly it seems like the health benefits of these sorts of unpopular green measures are being overstated enormously. I did see that article uh, and that research uh, yesterday about the link between air pollution and antibiotic resistance. Well, the latter, um, you know, is, is a long-standing issue and a real threat to mankind. So you can see how the two things for those who are eco-fanatics come together quite nicely is that even what they would view yeah. as the most sort of catastrophic alarmist issues that that we currently face coming you know, coming together quite neatly but no i i, mean, I think sadiq khan has long exaggerated the effects of uh ULES scheme on reduction in air pollution and the link that that would have mm. to say children uh, contracting asthma um and i suspect that the health benefits of the expansion of this scheme into certain areas of outer london will be almost imperceptible but he, you know he's got to try and make the case to londoners somehow because of the uxbridge by-election which most people viewed as a referendum on ulez and the tories were able to uh, retain that seat it's you know ultimately the case that particularly in outer london you know maybe ulez is popular for those who live in zones one and two and don't have dependents and don't have any disabilities and are young and can get around on public transport pretty easily that for anybody living in outside uh, outer london who may need to come into the city uh, with their tools for work or with their children because they're ferrying them to school you know it simply isn't feasible for them to do so by public transport and so it the, the measure feels so punitive it's caused very regressive it's going to hit the poorest hardest despite the scrappage scheme that sadiq has um now made his announcement about he somehow found this additional money down the back of the sofa uh, to fund that but you know the whole thing is really starting to fall apart so i don't think we should be surprised that he's falling back on the health benefits once again no absolutely right stay with Annabelle if you would we need to talk about the uh, water lawsuits uh, 800 million pounds legal action going on against the water companies of this country who are so useless they can't actually bring you any water uh, or indeed take any of it away Apart from that, they do a brilliant job. Also, we might talk a bit about Scotland and how much money they've been wasting uh, on behalf of the taxpayer. A £14 million credit card bill under Nicola Sturgeon. Amazing. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock. He'll be here uh, in just over a half an hour to tell us what's coming up on his show. Annabelle Denham's with us, though. We've been talking, Annabelle, this morning about the huge size now of the civil service in this country. Uh, £100,000 salary, apparently not enough. So many of them now are over 100000 uh, And also there's been another 100,000 actual civil servants hired, despite a sort of supposed uh, freeze on recruitment. And so there's now more than ever uh, more civil servants working for the government. But I've been Scotland, they've got a particularly different way of dealing with things. Is they've got uh, uh, a story running this morning that says Scottish taxpayers footed a £14 million credit card bill over three years uh, while Nicola Sturgeon was the First Minister. I mean, I thought I spent quite a lot of money on credit cards, but this really does uh, take the biscuit. They've got basically... Uh, £10,000 on VIP treatments for Nicola Sturgeon when she flew on official business uh, when she was First Minister. Uh, they've also got purchases including a staff member's driving theory test, China crockery for a meeting room, a £27 home disco, Wellington boots for inspections, uh, all sorts of hospitality and hotel accommodation at the Glen Eagles Hotel, which is very nice. I've been there myself. And also loads and loads of yoga classes taken uh, by the uh, uh, the good uh, members of the SNP. Now, according to a Holyrood spokesman, uh, for security reasons, we cannot comment on the First Minister's travel arrangements. 
except for the fact that they seem to cost an awful lot of money. Uh, also, apparently, they can't comment on the journey she may have taken from her home uh, to the police station, where she was questioned for eight hours uh, over the course of uh, a couple of months ago when she was asked about all manner of things, that monies that have gone missing. Also, uh, they say this rather laughably, right? The Scottish Government is committed to delivering the best value for money for taxpayers and proactively publishes information about spending to improve openness and transparency. Well, I'm sure Nicola's very happy about that because uh, it looks as though uh, the yoga classes and the meet and greet um, and the heel stoppers for making sure you don't fall over in your shoes um, it's really I mean we are in the grip of what I would regard as some of the most corrupt politicians that have ever lived what do you make of it well you can imagine how much the comms department for the SNP is scrambling around at the moment after this story broke but no Mike I share in your outrage uh, at the news that this much money has been put on uh, the credit card and of course it has echoes of the 2009 expensive scandal yeah. we haven't heard anything about moats or vases or bedside tables or there was one Labour MP wasn't there who had four beds over the course of four years yes. that were put on uh, expenses but it's certainly uh, you know ha has echoes of that and let's just see you know what else may or may not come to light but look this is just a, a natural danger of a nationalist electorate that judges parties on intentions instead of their results so look at the uh, SNP's record in office not least under Nicholas sturgeon look at how life expectancy for men and women went down drugs death soared uh the widening uh, the attainment gap uh, widened uh, drastically uh, you know the nhs is failing waiting times are going up um you know but but they're not being judged on that they're being judged on whether or not they can sever scotland from the rest of the uk but of course they failed on that as well um and there'll be significant i imagine political ramifications from this news about sturgeon's uh spending i think you could be pretty confident that it's not going to go down well in a constituency like Rutherglen, which is about to have a by-election mm. after its MP, Margaret Ferrier, um, was recalled, uh, having taken that train journey uh, during the coronavirus uh, pandemic. So already they're on the ropes. But I think that this by-election you know, is going to be very telling. If Labour are able to win it, um, then it could pave the way for them to storm to victory at the 2024 election. Not only would that be in the short term uh, a nightmare for the SNP but I think it could almost sound the death knell for the party because if you look back to 1999 you know the dawn of devolution uh. you know that you know, it, it could have been foreseen that in three consecutive general elections, you know, the the, the SNP, you know, would sweep the board. It won between 60 and 95 percent um, of Scotland's constituencies. So, you know, how many people would have concluded anything other than the arrival of an independent Scotland against that electoral track record? And yet, you know, after all of these years, after constantly pushing for independence, you know, they've made very little progress. Right. And, you know, if anything the independence cause is looking more hopeless than it has over the course of the last um couple of decades so you know i think that there's a, there are political uh, consequences of this story breaking uh, it's just going to add to the sense that the smp was not acting in its constituents best interests you know it's going to put the spotlight back on its record in government not just independence but across a range of areas and people are going to be left asking themselves whether you know do they feel any wealthier um, have their living standards improved under the SNP? And the answer will be no. So 
let's see what happens. Absolutely right. I mean, amongst some of the other expenditure I'm just looking at here, the government credit card was used to spend £1,271 at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport in February 2020 when she was en route to Brussels. Now, I used to spend quite a bit of time at Schiphol Airport flying from Glasgow to Washington, D.C. And apart from clogs and cheese, there's not a lot you can buy there. I mean, that's an awful lot of clogs and cheese, isn't it? You'd have to try quite hard to spend those sums of money. Not least if you're getting a short-haul flight. It's not one of those um, trips to the airport where you're uh, milling around and duty-free. No. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, that there is a sense that the SMP um, have turned from perhaps you know a small scrappy campaigning party into the arrogant privileged yes. elite they are now uh, the establishment and in a curious reversal of roles labor are the underdogs mm. in scotland and i think that you know this this story very much feeds into that. Um, this by-election uh, will play into Labour's hands, the idea that, that those roles have been reversed. I think it, I can imagine the electorate f throwing their weight behind uh, Scottish Labour. Uh, and, you know, it's just immensely um, problematic. And it's incredible, really, if you rewind 12 months to, to think about the implosion of the Scottish Nationalist uh, Party, you know, began really with that, um, with Sturgeon tying herself, herself in knots over gender recognition, yeah. um, really backed herself into a corner, then the shock resignation, and then the, immediately the connection was made between those two things, but no, subsequently there's this, you know, alleged missing £600,000, that's being investigated by the police, Sturgeon being put into the back of a police car in handcuffs, you know, the sense that comes Yousaf is not up to the job and of course when he was uh, voted into power he was the continuity candidate well yeah. I sort of imagine people who uh, put their support behind him uh, are wishing for anything but continuity sturgeon right now. Mm, absolutely right final story uh, for you Annabelle uh, front page of the Guardian today water companies face £800 million legal action over raw sewage allegations I wonder if this is the future uh, for uh, keeping these kind of companies in check because we know uh, that all of the water companies without really any question including uh, Seven Trent Water, Thames Water, United Utilities Anglian Water, Yorkshire Water Northumbria Water, they're all being brought in to this one class action suit because they've all been pretty derelict in their duty to provide a decent service to people, a, an affordable service and one which doesn't pollute the waterways or the sea. I wonder if the same kind of uh, class action as this one works could actually end up being brought against the railway companies, the post office, all sorts of organisations that are simply not doing uh, what it says on the tin. No, I think that's right. I mean, when it comes to water, the whole sector is an unholy mess. And of course, if these companies are acting illegally, if they're going against regulations, then they should be held accountable. Mm. My concern is that this will uh, intensify calls for na nationalisation of our water industry uh, and the suggestion that publicly owned companies are somehow immune from bad or illegal behaviour when, of course, they're not. I yeah. think we need to bear in mind that privatisation actually was a good thing, that the UK is investing far more in its water infrastructure than anywhere else in Europe, that leakages have gone down since we privatised the sector. You know, it, it's hard to imagine it being worse, but actually it was back in the 1980s. Uh. Um, 
So, I, you know, I'd, I'd just be wary of that. And I think that we've got to put the spotlight not just on the water companies for their behaviour, but also on the regulator of what. Why is it that it's not setting the appropriate regulations in order to further clamp down on things like uh, sewage and water leakage? You know, why is it that so much of Britain's water is lost to leaks? Yeah. And how are we going to address it? And if it's a problem that we have an antiquated Victorian uh, water infrastructure, then what are we going to do to address that? And I suspect it's going to involve even higher bills for the British public, but we should at least be honest with them. I don't think it's enough that we bring this case and that compensation is dished out. I think we need to have a long-term strategy for fixing what is ultimately a broken mm. water system. Yeah, absolutely right. As ever, great to talk to you, Annabelle. Thank you very much indeed. Annabelle Denham, Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph, uh, talking a great deal of common sense there about everything. But I'm serious. We may look into this water story a bit more uh, because I'm not generally in favour uh, of law firms uh, making money out of the ordinary people of this country. But if they are actually doing something decent and holding the water companies to account, then I'm all for it. It's an, it's an organisation called Lee Day who seem to be doing it, but we'll look into that. Coming up, we're going to find out exactly who's bankrolling Tony Blair uh, in his quest to get Britain back into the EU and also uh, to somehow cement uh, Keir Starmer as the next Prime Minister of this country. He's getting an awful lot of money and it's all coming from America. I can tell you that. Plus, the world of woke coming next. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.